Episode number two with Dr. Mabel O. Wilson, Professor of Architecture at Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with architect, designer, and scholar, Dr. Mabel O. Wilson. Doing double duty as a professor of architecture and as associate director of the Institute for Research in African American Studies, both at Columbia University, Dr. Wilson's not your traditional designer of buildings. Her transdisciplinary practice extends well beyond the built environment into the worlds of curation, performance, art, and cultural history. Mabel is a founding member of Who Builds Your Architecture, a project that examines the links between labor, architecture, and the global networks that form around the building of buildings, and is also co-founder of the Global Africa Lab, for which she received the 2019 American Academy of Arts and Letters Award in Architecture, along with her colleague, Mario Gooden. In today's episode, we discuss how Mabel's problems fitting in as a young architect led to designing her own path to success, the ways in which design and structures have been used to create the concepts of both blackness and whiteness, and how mass incarceration not only tied a generation of black men to a failing capitalist state, but left a generation of black women without partners. Mabel, um, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. Um, it's so wonderful to have you on. I know it's been uh, a, a second with us trying to you know, juggle our schedules, particularly um, in the middle of COVID. Um, but yeah, it's, it's such a joy to have you here. Um, maybe, maybe to begin, could you explain to us when you felt that design would be a part of your life or when... When did you first realize that design would be a part uh, of your life and what you wanted to do when you grew up? Um, I would say that design really starts in just an interest in having a creative practice. Um, just being the kid who always was drawing, uh, loved art classes, liked to make things. I mean, I just the sense of like being a maker was very clear even when I was a very young child. And I also just came from a family of people who were makers, who were artists. Oh, wow. Um, what did your parents do? Um, my dad was an engineer for the Defense Department um, and moved from the South to the North because he couldn't get work as an engineer in the, in the segregated South in the early 50s. So he ended up moving up to New Jersey to work in the Defense Department. And he actually designed the house that I grew up in. He did the plans for the house I grew up in. So that's what I mean. My, my dad, even though he's an engineer, could also draw plans. So there was that. And then my mom uh, taught home economics. So she, she was a great cook. She could sew. So she was always making stuff. And then her brother is a pretty well-known artist named John Outerbridge. So, um, and then her siblings, a number of them taught art and were artists in their own right. And um, yeah, and then on my dad's side, my grandfather was a chef and he came from a family of chefs. So, so I don't know, there was just a very strong sense of like 
you know, kind of making do with what you have. And that very much, I think, I don't know, just always been interested in making stuff. And is that something you bring into your practice now, this idea or concept of making do with what you have? Um, I know that um, it's definitely a part of, 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 of an African tradition uh, of making. Um, I think that being creative in how you work is a really important part of it, which is why I consider, and it's part of the reason it's called Studio And, because it's Studio And all the other stuff that I do. Um, and it's also called Studio And because I like and believe in collaborative engagement and working collaboratively on different kinds of projects with people. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think being creative with one's practice is really important. And I feel as um, a black person in America that the professional and disciplinary boundaries don't allow you, or didn't, certainly didn't allow me to really do the kinds of explorations and explore the kinds of questions that I had. And so I had to become transdisciplinary in order to just do the kind of work, especially the creative intellectual work I was interested in. Hmm. And, and what was one of those first boundaries that you encountered? I mean, as a, as a, as a black female architect um, going throughout your educational process. Hmm. I mean, I, one of the first boundaries for me was just in my undergraduate education, like it was very rigid. I went to the University of Virginia in architecture and it was like landing in another planet, but that's a whole other story. Um, but oftentimes when we were given projects, you know, the way they would teach it is like you would have party one and party two, which are just basic diagrams, like diagram one and diagram two. You're either going to fit in one of those and I would be on diagram three. <laughs> Like I would just invent a whole other way of figuring out how the project should go together. And I got very frustrated because I didn't realize I was just not being intellectually stimulated. And I left for a semester and went to London to the Architectural Association and just found my peeps. I found, <laughs> you know, it was, it was cosmopolitan. There were people all over the world. We traveled, you know, we, we, we saw film and we read theory and philosophy and, you know, you could bring your own cultural experience to your work. And that's what was missing for me in my undergraduate education. And I just, I really hit a wall and I had to get out. And I'm so thankful that I did because that really said, oh, no, wait, you know, you, you've just been drinking in the wrong pond. You just, you just need to drift into those spaces where you can find these productive dialogues with people. And so do you feel that that limitation was one of geography, um, like being in London versus being in America, or was it one of just like that particular time in the world? Yeah, I think it was just that period of time and yeah, like 84. I went to London, I think in 84, which is a great time to be in London. Um, yeah, and that just said to me, I don't know, it just stimulated a set of questions, a kind of intellectual and creative in set of interests that, you know, I just had to figure out how to get there. Um, and I went and worked professionally. I went through a very kind of conventional route for a few years when I finished my undergraduate degree in architecture. And then I just went back for a master's of architecture at Columbia. And I went to Columbia because Bernard Schumi became Dean. Um, Bernard is a Swiss French architect who was doing La Valette at the time. But Bernard had also um, taught at 
he taught at the AA. He was kind of part of a milieu of people. And I thought, okay, that means Columbia is going to get really interesting. And, and, and what were some of those traditional jobs that you took coming out of undergrad? I worked in a large architectural engineering firm in Princeton, New Jersey. I worked on labs, <laughs> designing uh, the layouts for lighting and tiles. And yeah, I mean, it was just, it, it, yeah. I mean, I love the people I worked with, but the work was a little mind numbing. And then I was like, I'm done with this. And after about a year, a little over a year, I quit and I moved to New York uh, and worked in a firm there until I went to grad school. Hmm. And so, and so now looking back, like, what would you, what would you change uh, about that path? Like, you know, imagine a young, you know, architecture student of color. Like, would you advise that they take that traditional path, or should they try to chart their own route? I think for me and the group of people, like my my generation of civil rights babies, basically. Um, you could afford education, you, you had an affordable education and you could go work. I think it's really hard now because education is so much more expensive. And I still think the salaries of architecture are pretty low. So I'm not sure I'd do architecture just from a finance, unfortunately from a financial perspective. I think it's a really, it's a tougher decision to make to go into because of the cost of education these days. And so what keeps you going? Like what keeps you motivated every day to keep showing up and doing this work? Um, I think there's just a lot to be understood and explored. Um, that there just, you know, there just isn't enough work um, about uh, specifically, which is primarily what I work on, is race in architecture and also blackness. Um, and there's just not in the field of architecture much about that. And as a result, that's why I've become so transdisciplinary because I've had to go elsewhere to get an understanding of what that might mean and then try to translate it back into to architecture. And when did you first feel that void? And I, I mean, feel like F-E-E-L, um, that void of dialogue uh, between race and architecture, how they influenced each other? Well, I would say when I was an undergrad, I just never saw anything that had to do with my experience. I was learning, it was very Eurocentric education. Everything were European examples, you know, and, and it was just, you know, I just, I just tell me, I just felt like a vampire. I was looking at everything, but I never saw myself reflected in those works. Part of the reason why I went to the AA and then could see, you know, there was a, a woman in my unit from Nigeria and her first project was about, you know, she made a space that was about, you know, certain cultural rituals, you know, from Nigeria, from her people in Nigeria. And I was like, wow, you can do that. <laughs> you can actually have, you know, cultural expression in your work and not it being ruled by party A, party B. It's got to look like a palazzo or a villa or you know, it was a much more, um, I don't know. I mean, it just said, you know, there are other m modes of expression. Ah, okay. So you rushed back so you could design what your life in New Jersey was like. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I almost stayed in London, and but I wanted to graduate and finish. So 
I came back and then, yeah, when in Jersey and then just kind of just had to get the hell out of Dodge and moved to New York because I realized I need to be somewhere cosmopolitan. absolutely absolutely um and so so how would you how would you describe good design if if there is such a thing oh that's a really good question yeah i mean uh, an example that i thought was very very that's been very well done is the memorial for peace and justice in um montgomery i took my students to see that because i thought you know, not only is it an important subject matter, the, the history of lynching and its, um, its invisibility, um, even though it was very widespread in the South, um, but I thought that the way mass design and the Equal Justice Initiative thought about how you tell that story to a public who doesn't know um, in a really beautiful, forceful way, um, yeah, I think it's a really good piece of architecture. And I just think the larger project, not just in Montgomery, but they also have one where they're, um, it's like a, commu- a restorative community, restorative justice community project or something like that, where they're now putting markers and it's at sites where people were lynched um, is a very powerful one because it really draws that whole landscape. It, 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 it says it's not a place, but multiple places and it forces communities to deal with their difficult histories. And, and I think just overall, it's just a very smart project. And so what is your, like, what is your design process like? Um, you know, you're given a site, um, there's something you want to curate. Uh, what, like, where do you begin? How do you start to begin to think about um, what you're going to create? Um, I have such a hybrid practice because I don't, I would say design at this point maybe is 10% of what I do. Yeah. Um, So conventional design processes, you know, aren't necessarily part of, um, you know, kind of my everyday sense of like what I'm working on, but what I am working on. Yeah. I would just say if I am working on something, a lot of it is just understanding, you know, just because I'm a historian is understanding how this place came to be. Like, I think that is really an important part of understanding um, what you're looking at. Like, it's just not a tabula rasa, but there are reasons why things are the way they are. And especially if you're working with like communities of color, there, there are always power dynamics in that. And I think it's important to understand, you know, how those are at play with what you are doing. And that's not something that is readily taught in design education, I think. Yeah, yeah. Your, I mean, your practice crosses multiple disciplines. I remember um, an exhibition of yours that I saw at the storefront for art and architecture uh, called Marching On. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit about that and, and the creative process uh, around that exhibition? Um. That was a project where I was paired with someone named Bryony Roberts um, by Ava Frank, who is the former director. So the exhibition is really the residue of a um, collaboration as basically artistic directors of this performance called Marching On that we did in um, Marcus Garvey Park in Harlem. And so, it, you know, it was kind of a, you know, like sort of like a, a collaboration between us 
the Marching Cobras, and then Storefront and Performa, actually, so kind of supporting the performance. And so the exhibition was really showing um, what we were doing in the project and then the props of the um, exhibition, which were the capes, and also just the exploration of it was the history of marching in the United States um, as it pertains to African-Americans in public space. So, so again, I mean, that again, that whole thing started, the prompt was history. I mean, Ava saw a project that Briney had done at the Chicago Biennale, which she did with a drill team in front of a Mies van der Rohe building. But Ava was like, and Ava's from Spain, she's like, why are young black youth throwing up rifles and why are they marching, you know, in this militaristic way? Like, what's the history of that? We need to unpack that. So that's the prompt where she approached me and Bryony to say, would you two be willing to collaborate? And so a lot of it was just understanding like, all right, what was the history of marching and marching bands for, for, for black Americans? So, and that's what I mean, like the history can tell you a lot about, um, you know, spaces and why they are the way they are. And could you explain a little bit about um, some of the things you discovered in that research? Just because I remember when I saw the exhibition, I was just kind of blown away. Like I, I thought I knew marching bands, um, but I obviously had no clue, especially uh, as it pertains to the history of, of black and brown people in America. Yeah, no, it was great because part of the project was also to teach the Cobras like the history of their craft. Like this is what they do, but they probably didn't know like where this really comes from. And so we've just looked at the history that um, often enslaved or free blacks would be the drummers or, you know, play the fife um, in, you know, sort of military um, maneuvers or attacks like from basically the Revolutionary War onward. And then in, in this, during the Civil War, one of the first public displays really in the United States of black troops was actually in New York in, in Washington, in, in um, Union Square, where um, a colored infantry for the Union Army showed their colors, which is what it was called, marched in front of a reviewing, um, uh, a, a review, review, podium in, in Union Square, and it was huge. Um, and so, you know, that set into, you know, a kind of history of sort of partially Blacks in the military, but then you also get um, uh, the influence of, of just band music, march music in general, which leads to jazz, trumpets, you know, just completely interwoven the way in which um, uh, Black colleges in the South then took that and developed their own kind of style of performance and marching. And, you know, and so we sort of traced that whole history also just of marching. One of the things we became interested in was like the way in which Mar Marcus Garvey would drive and parade around Harlem. And he, you know, the whole idea of the uniform, the epaulets, the women in their white, you know, they would wear their, their white uniforms in March. There was a way in which African-Americans were using the temporary ability to be in public space in March as a way of building solidarity around things like Pan-Africanism. And so we became interested in two things. One was a silent march organized by W.E.B. Du Bois um, 
that was a protest against lynching in, I believe it was 1917, where they marched down Fifth Avenue. Thousands of African-Americans marched silently. They were just drumming and in lines of kids and then women all dressed in white and then men. Um, and so it was very powerful. It was right after the East St. Louis um, riots. That's really on that. And then there was uh, another huge parade that attracted millions of New Yorkers, like I think about two years later of the Harlem Hellfighters who were, again, another military unit, infantry unit that, that what didn't fight with the US because US soldiers didn't want them, but they fought alongside the French in World War I very valiantly. But they also were amazing musicians and really brought jazz to Europe. So they were a really remarkable band. And so they marched through, again, Fifth Avenue, through the streets of New York, and millions and millions of New Yorkers came. Um, so we use that as a basis for interpreting our performance. So the dancers were uh, the silent march, and then the drummers, all the drum line, were the um, Hel Harlem Hellfighters in the performance. Did you see Beyonce's Coachella performance? She stole that from us. <laughs> <laughs> we were ahead of Beyonce. <laughs> we had it first. You heard it here first. Beyonce stole it from Mabel Wilson. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. That's so funny that that came afterwards uh, as well. And so, and so pivoting back to design um, and, and space, um, I wanted to ask, what does black space feel like to you? Like I know you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, that void as you were going through your, your, your um, education process, but like, what does black space feel like to you? Like, how do you know when you're in it? And, and how can we think about um, creating more spaces like that? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that part of it is understanding, you know, like what those spaces of black sociality are, and they can be, you know, they can be spaces of domination and degradation, right? Spaces where black life is developed. Like I would say just the mass incarceration in the whole prison industrial complex, that's a space. And I would say that that space has become a kind of black space. Um, simply by the way it's been designed, especially as of late, um, with the rise in mass incarceration from the 60s onward. Um, but I also think there are other Black spaces that are culturally, um, you know, sites of refuge, sites of healing. Um, you know, these could be the corner, it could be the front porch, it could be the club. Um, you know, they're all, you know, sort of spaces where Black cultural practices, um, you know, allow for certain, certain kinds of engagement. And oftentimes, you know, under enslavement or Jim Crow, those things were either outlawed, and so they had to happen surreptitiously, or, you know, they were on the other side of the tracks, like under Jim Crow. So, you know, which is why, you know, with Marching On, we were interested in the street because that then becomes a site of appropriation, right, by Blacks, whose public sphere ability to be in public space was limited. Mabel, so I, I, I love this, uh, what is this, like this, like, screen thing on, on your Zoom um, of, of Jacques Tati's playtime. And for mm -hmm. those of you who can't see it, um, behind Mabel are a um, long row of kind of 
Mies van der Rohe-ish like buildings, um, which uh, which makes me think about like Mies van der Rohe and this idea of like the radiant city or this concept of the radiant city, um, this like this kind of urban perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think back to you know as you were talking about like the East St. Louis riots, um, but St. Louis, which is where I'm from, and the now kind of famously failed um, Pruitt-Igo housing complex that was The Pruitt-Igo Joint Housing Project was a series of 33 11-story buildings built in St. Louis, Missouri and first occupied in 1954. Designed during segregation and meant for middle-income white and black residents, the buildings were divided into the Wendell O. Pruitt Homes, named after a black World War II fighter pilot, and the William Igo Apartments, after a U.S. congressman of the same name. However, in 1955, a year after opening, a federal judge ordered that the St. Louis Housing Authority end its practice of segregation, causing occupancy to fall from 91% to less than 60% in less than 10 years as white residents fleed to the suburbs, a phenomenon also known as white flight. By 1971, half of the buildings were boarded up and the project was ordered to be demolished, which was televised nationally and seen as the day modern architecture died. Although grossly underfunded and maintained, Pruitt-Igo's legacy is one of urban planning and renewal gone awry and its architect, Minoru Yamasaki, designed another set of buildings that were also destroyed on national television, the World Trade Towers. Yeah. Um, And, you know, what are your thoughts around, you know, these Western European ideals of, of, of order and structure and the ways in which architecture has not served, um, black people or people in general, um, and, and the ways in which black people have been made to exist in these structures that are not particularly designed for them or just designed with them in mind period yeah no I mean I like the way you said made to exist because I think that that's a big part of um, blackness um and um and I, and I say that because one of the classes I'm teaching called enclosure that I'm teaching with Saidiya Hartman who's done some really amazing um, really amazing writing around these kind of questions of like slavery, um, of um, regimes of domination, you know, the history of slavery. And um, one of the people we read uh, in the class is Sylvia Winter. And she's not the only one, but, you know, it, it just made it very clear that what the slave trade did was it made the black. Like when we were in Africa, we weren't black we were whoever we were, like our ancestors were whoever they were. It is precisely when we are captured and turned into property and then loaded onto that ship that that's where that process of becoming black happens. Coming the Negro, becoming the slave, right? You're made in that, you're made in that process. It's the process of producing a subject um, that then has a certain position socially, right, in the West. Um, and so that question of what you are made into um, is part and parcel of, of how blackness emerges as a, as a category, which is necessary for the exact opposite of its production, which is whiteness, right? You know, that those people who were in what became known as Europe were whoever they were, 
right? But through these colonial encounters with Asia and with Africa and the new world, they started to see themselves as and invent categories of racial difference that then give whiteness its value, which is clearly superior, right? Above the, the, the negation, like probably the, the negative term of blackness. Um, and so I think there, there are ways in which you are made black constantly through slavery, um, through the violence of whipping, through um, same as with Jim Crow, you're given citizenship, but that's diminished because there's something they need from you. They need labor, they need to profit from you. They don't wanna give you power. They don't wanna give you land. They don't, so, so that you're constantly being, being made black. And, and I, I fundamentally think that what happened was that Europe comes up with a system of capitalism, of an economic system, a social system, um, a culture. They define the terms of culture, of what society is, of history, of nation, like all these things that we take as a matter of fact were invented by Europeans um, as part of this colonial project. But the problem is it's universal. It goes everywhere, but it also has embedded hierarchies, right, of domination. And that typically means that whiteness is the privileged term for everything. Citizen is white. Citizen is not black. Um, resident is white. Resident is not black. And so I think as such architecture, as the European art of building comes out of that history, right? And so it is part and parcel, I think, of that European Western project. And as such, I feel that the discipline of architecture has a very hard time accommodating blackness because it's not made to allow blackness and people who live black lives to really survive. And so I don't think Pruitt-Igo would ever make it because not it's not just the architecture, but it's a lot of all of the other things that come together that would have allowed black life to thrive. But all of those things don't coalesce. They will coalesce for the most part on the white side of town, but deliberately not on the black side, which won't have good roads, won't have the funding for schools, won't have um, you know, electrical lighting, won't have uh, access to food that's affordable, won't have sewerage, uh, won't have maintenance, won't have decent jobs, won't, you know, like all of these things, you know, sort of come together to produce a condition in which black life can't thrive, you know, which is something Orlando Patterson called social death. And so I feel that architecture is part of that larger assemblage. And architects kind of don't see the complicity in it because one, that's how whiteness works. And two, architecture is so allied with ideas of progress and betterment and, um, you know, like social advancement, which is the project of modernity that, well, why would you question that? That's the logic of how you improve. So I know that's a long answer, but I think- No, 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 me, it's great. Pruitt, Pruitt Igo would never, would, would never made it. And I talked to an architect, Michael Lewis, who's a great architect in San Francisco, who actually grew up in, that, in Pruitt Igo. He was some of the first families that wow. moved into it. Wow. And he said at first it was great, but then the handles fell off the windows and nobody came to fix it. And then the elevators kept breaking down and no one came to fix it. You know, and then, you know, the, the hallways flooded and no one came to fix it, right? So they built it, but there was nothing that the state did to maintain it. And it just fell into disrepair. And that's why it failed. 
Oh, wow. I mean, you're so right. I mean, well, yes, obviously, yes, you're right. Um, but, you know, as you're speaking, like, it makes me think about just the just the role design has played in the creation of blackness, like house structures. For instance, like the, the slave ship, like the slave ship is no different than the Pruitt Igo housing complex. The ways in which designed has been used to reinforce this concept of blackness to mm -hmm. then reinforce this other concept of whiteness. So right. like, yeah, like, is there is there hope? Like, how do we move forward um, knowing that these systems, these 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 design codes are so ingrained um, and embedded uh, within our culture? It, it's hard because it's so profoundly embedded. It is the way we think and it is who we are, right? As some, so it's really hard to understand what else is possible. I mean, it's really, it's it's really difficult. But, but I do feel that, there is, there was something before race and there was something before nation. There was something, there were ways of being in the world that weren't like this. And there always, you know, there have been, I mean, there, there were just ways that people lived. There is possible that we can live differently. And we have been living differently for the last month and a half. We're not flying. We're certainly not polluting the air with automobiles so much so that that oil is staying stuck in the ground. You know, we're staying local, you know, like, yeah, you can have radical change if you, we basically refuse the terms of capital, right? <laughs> Even though we can see how capital and nation are tied, right? With the pressure to open it up so the economy can going and so... But even within coronavirus, you can see the inherent inequalities around who's dying and who's living, right? Who got out of New York City? I been joking with people. New York City hadn't been this black and brown since the 80s. <laughs> I hate to say a lot of white oh, folks are oh gone. God, oh God. It's just second homes, right? Black people, even black and brown folks don't even have a first home. They're barely holding on to the home that they have. So, so again, I mean, it shows you, right? And, and, and as such, they can, they can distance themselves from the threat where black and brown people who are essential are smack in the middle and vulnerable for it because that's where their labor is positioned. They don't have the luxury of being elsewhere. They're, they're enclosed in that, in that condition of servitude still and vulnerability and death, right? There's a, you know, some people like Denise De Silva, whose work I love, she just says, there's a horizon of life and there's a horizon of death. And usually black and brown folks are pushed toward the horizon of death. In which ways have you felt that that specter, that specter of death in your own career or even just your life? I mean, you're you're more than your career. Um, and, you know, I should preface that by um, mentioning the conversation that we had at Harvard that one time we were when we were speaking about the invisibility of black women um, in, in the world. And I was, you know, in my cis male-ness said that, uh, you know, in a way it, it's kind of like a superpower because you're able to quietly and silently like navigate these, these corporate spaces, you know, to, to arrive at a space um, of leadership and no one see you coming. And you mentioned, um, 
yes, that's true. But by the time you get there, you've suffered so many nicks and scrapes that you've lost surface tension. Yeah. (laughs) Like the little micro cuts that just cut away at you until you just bleed out and you're, you're gone. (laughs) yeah no this is why black women you know with 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 um um you know pregnant women i mean they're so much more vulnerable and and it doesn't matter i mean serena williams just proved it doesn't matter how much money you have it's the stresses and the ways in which the system treats you um and Black life is, it's a negation. It's just devalued in comparison to white life. And it's hard because I think there's, you know, after civil rights, it was like the playing field is equal. We're all up here. You know, I'm a Columbia professor, you know, and it's true. This is not necessarily what my parents went through, but I don't think my parents also had, you had lynching, but you don't have the wholesale genocide of mass incarceration. Like they didn't have, like, and and I think, you know, Jim Crow had its own limits, but mass incarceration was just like, we're just gonna wipe you out because you're not useful anymore. You know, and we're gonna take you and we're gonna house you in these spaces because we don't want you in proximity to us again. Again, it's like a form of social distancing, right? To use that term. Um, and you buy that space, right? And 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 that's why, you know. Prisons, again, with COVID, the highest concentration of death is now in Marion, Ohio. Why? Because that's where a prison is. So, yeah, I mean, there's uh, the the ways in which um, land, territory, property, building space, because architecture is also economic. um, And what whiteness buys you is that space. That's the space where you can live and have your own room and, you know, have your own office and have your second home or your third home or whatever. And for a lot of black people, it's still, you're still crammed into a space that makes you very vulnerable to a lot of things. And that doesn't change. And even if you get that opportunity, um, like people did, let's say in the early aughts, it was ripped away from you with the recession, the subprime mortgage, right? They basically extracted, you know, they gave you a subprime mortgage, extracted the value and went, Went on, went on about their business, but you lost your wealth, which is no different than redlining. Um, you know, it was just another form of wealth extraction from, or what do they call it? Poverty capitalism or something like that. Or racial capitalism, I prefer to even say it, because that's what it is. I mean, and like even you, like you personally, like what were those moments where you were like, oh, okay, that hurt, that hurt. Um, and then how did you recover? Well, one of the things that was a big challenge for me was when I decided to do doctoral studies, right, to get a PhD. It was not, I was not the kid that was, I never thought one, I would ever do a master's, but I did. And I had amazing classmates who really fostered an intellectual awakening. Um, And then I went on to teach for a few years, but, you know, the people I just gravitated toward were some really interesting geographers and philosophers, you know, who are doing critical theory work. And they were just like, you should think about doing a PhD. And then I kept, you know, people kept saying, you should. So I finally applied to two architecture programs. And then God bless her, Rosalind Deutsch, who I adore, who's an art historian at Barnard said, you should apply to American studies. And thank God I applied to American studies because I couldn't get into the architecture history program. 
I think I didn't have the right pedigree. Um, I didn't have an art history background, an architectural history background. Um, and then I wanted to write about race. And they were like, that has nothing to do with architecture. And so I think I was like double whammied, which is fine. So, because I, you know, American studies is like, we want her, she's great. And, and it was great for me because I got this amazing education in humanities that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise and have amazing colleagues that I would not have had otherwise had I just stayed in the narrow lane of architectural history. You know, I, and I love that. I love this concept of, of, you know, one thing um, not being given that allowed you or provided access to something that was, you know, even better that really kind of put you along the path that you really wanted to be on. So, you know, what was the most beautiful no you've ever received? That was probably one of, that was probably one of them. That was just like, it was very interesting. It's like, oh, I didn't get in. And, you know, at that point it was just like, oh, I guess I just didn't have whatever. And I didn't know that I was actually going into this amazing program in American studies. Um, but I, I was never resentful. Like I, um, you know, I got to be friends with a lot of people who were in those programs, who were both faculty and students, who were incredibly supportive of my coming in. And I, I, what I realized was I think my work made a lot of the older white male faculty very uncomfortable in, in the kind of work because I wanted to work on race. And, and they were just like, no, she's black. Uh-uh, she's going to be angry. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't think this has anything to do with architecture. Um, but I just, you know, I became, you know, friends with a lot of really great people. And um, I would just say, as a consequence, one of those institutions apologized to me because they actually realized they had made a mistake in not letting me in. Big mistake. <laughs> and that's how I found out about the whole thing. I didn't know. I mean, I had no way of knowing. It's like, okay, I didn't get in. You didn't think I was worth it. But, you know, it didn't stop me. I'm just curious and I want to know what people are working on. And so I was like, oh, okay. This was some serious racist stuff that just went on here. And so, I don't know. And, and I feel like my revenge was when I finished my dissertation, it was awarded one of the top prizes in the field of American studies. And then I turned it into a book that was also, you know, up for one of the top prizes in the field for my first book. And I was just like, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, yeah. So it just said to me, I am very, you know, I was a good, I, I did have the capacity to kind of work on the stuff I wanted to work on. And so now I have a book, a, um, it's a collection of essays. I co-edited it with two other people, Irene Chang and Charles Davis called Race and Modern Architecture, which for me is the dissertation I never wrote. You know, it's a collection of essays that specifically explore the racial dimensions within the discourse of modern architecture from the Enlightenment onward. And it's there. It's just whiteness does not allow you to see the terms. You have to, you, you have to kind of think through critically um, where ideas of culture, uh, origin, um, organicism, you know, are, are coming from. Okay, well, number one, I need this book. So when does the book come out? It was supposed to come out this week, but I think because because of coronavirus, the they, it hasn't been able to get get to wherever it was being. I think it might have been printed in Asia or something. 
And so it hasn't gotten here yet. Ah, okay. Okay, cool. So it's, so it's done. Yeah. Um, but like what in this process did you learn? Like what, what did you discover? Um, how far back did these, these codes and ways of being, um, like how far back do they go? Yeah, I know it's been a six year project for us, I think. Um, and, you know, we, we did it very methodically, very slowly because it's the first of its kind. I mean, it's so unique. There was no one to really peer review it because there's nobody, we are the people who have the expertise in this area at this point. Um, but again, to me, what it said was how deeply embedded architecture and design is in a European understanding. Of, of building, specifically with the architecture, but also design as a kind of invention um, as well. And to me, it just showed how much it allies with, with the project, the colonial project. Um, so much so, like I've been reading a lot lately, like all of those buildings that I learned in my history and UVA, you know, so-and-so's, you know, estate and blah, blah, blah. Well, all that money was coming from Jamaica from their sugar plantations in Jamaica, right? So, so much of this was so tied to, you know, you read about Robin o Robert Owens and, you know, as a um, radical social reformer, you know, who had mills in New Lanark, New, uh, New Lanark, Scotland. Well, where was that cotton coming from? They weren't growing it in England. They were getting it from the West Indies, right? So the, you know, the ways and the entanglements of this kind of um, transatlantic slave, but also, you know, India, you know, these legacies of colonial domination are front and center in, in these, these histories. But how would you know if you didn't, you know, you didn't know to look for the terms? It's there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting this this concept of, you know, now becoming the expert in a field like what we haven't done what we have done has not been done before. Um how how do you find the courage to to exist in that space like when you encounter a subject um that literally has not really existed in the world. Um how do you how do you how do you draw the courage to stand in that space and to move forward and to press forward. But I think that's the creative struggle, right? Mm, mm, cre mm, to create mm. something is to create something yeah. that's not been there yeah. before. That is the essence of creativity. But the problem with, with a lot of people is it's really difficult to address the unknown, right? I think that's why so many people retreat into what's familiar and what they know. Right, and, and I mean that also on a social level, like I just wanna be around people who are like me, basically. And I think to be able to engage with people you don't know who are not like you is a creative process, is, is, a, is a kind of ethic in a way. Uh, and it is, it's scary, it's daunting. Um, but I think you have to understand there's always something to be gained uh, or potentially lost in, in that, you know, in taking that risk. So um, I think, yeah, I, I think it's really important. That's why, you know, I think if we are going to move forward, we are going to have to create new ways of being social together, new ways of understanding that we are a, a species within a planet that sustains us and a bunch of other species. 
Uh, because if we don't, we're over as a species. This, we're done. The earth will still be here, but you know, it won't be able to sustain us as a species because we're going to kill the planet that sustains us. And so we have to create new ways of being human together that may not be predicated on capitalism or democracy or whatever. I don't know what that is, but I think it's an exciting prospect. And is that is that what wakes you up every morning and, and keeps you going, knowing that capitalism ever looms above us? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's, 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 it's useful to understand how it works and what it is in its own history. Because it wasn't, you know, capitalism hasn't always been here. Um, so, I mean, to really understand how, what it does and how it works, you know, is, is useful, actually. Um, but again, there was a wor world before capitalism. And even when capitalism in formation, there were worlds outside of that. You know, there were people who were on this land before Europeans came. You know, had completely other worldviews and ways of being in the world and knowledge systems that had nothing to do with Europe. So Europe is not the end all or be all, even though it tells itself it is. Yeah, I, you know, and I want to circle back actually to this idea, this concept of the things that that make us and shape us. You know, I, I mean, earlier you mentioned talking about you know applying for your PhD, um, but like looking back, what do you think was your biggest failure, and and how did you how did you work through that? How did you recover from that? Hmm. Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. Well, I would say I wish I had been more attuned to, you know, just growing up, I always knew as a black woman, work was going to be difficult. Like it was going to be really hard. You know, just, you just know, you know, you're going to be the first to do whatever, you know, especially if you go into architecture, you know, you just, they're never, you know, I never had a black professor never had a black person on a review. I mean, I had black colleagues, you know, classmates. But again, like you don't have these kind of mentors or role models. The only one, the one person that I met who was amazing was Max Bond. And Max was like, for me, like, I want to be like him <laughs> when I grow up. Um, and, and so meeting Max when I was an undergrad was great. It was, it was amazing. That probably was a, you know, a, a big change agent in some respects. Um, but I didn't understand degrees to which um, anti-Black racism was going to shape my entire life um, in the way which it has. And that, you know, for my generation um, of Black women um, who were, you know, who were straight and, you know, in, in seeking a partner in life, you just had no idea that drugs, right, the ways in which drugs infiltrated communities, then, um, criminalization and mass incarceration, you know, as the New York Times said, just wipe out 3 million black men, like gone, poof, you know, off the census rolls, which meant for my generation, you know, it just wiped out, you know, whatever it is, whether you were gonna partner with somebody or whatever that meant. And I just didn't understand at the time how much that was going to impact because then, you know, you just, it's, it's black women are one of the groups in the country that have no wealth. You just, there's, it's impossible. You're never gonna inherit it and you can't make it because you're always paid 60 cents on the dollar, right? Um, 
even though you're sitting in the same room often with white men, you know, who get a dollar ten for the dollar, for white women who will always benefit from being, you know, being partnered with someone who both professionally and financially. And so certainly for my generation, I think of black women, you know, we got we got role. <laughs> it's been, you know, Barack and Michelle, you know, are beautiful, you know, but I would say there's a third of that of our generation that just it just didn't happen for precisely for that reason you know that after I think after civil rights there was a whole other racial regime that came in and part of it was you know criminalization mass incarceration neoliberalism let's just get rid of that you know we don't have jobs for people we can't you know they're not going to get factories they're not going to go work at Ford they're not going to so what are these black men are going to do they're going to riot they're going to steal and they're gonna, you know, and people turn toward underground economies and that criminalized a lot of people and just white, you know, they died, they overdosed, they were incarcerated and there were real consequences and mass incarceration is its own economy in and of itself. And, you know, I just didn't think that, um, I didn't understand the degree to which that's just deeply embedded in the modern project because of of the ways in which race produced inequalities and how profound it is within the American project, this inequality. So much so, that's why black folks are dying from COVID-19. We were just never given and allowed to accumulate things that allow us to thrive in ways that are equivalent to white Americans, which isn't to say there aren't poor white Americans who also have challenges of education and health and all of that, but their whiteness and their claims to whiteness will always give them opportunity. Hmm. And so do you maybe feel that your biggest failure was failing to become a lesbian? (laughs) (laughs) If only I swang that way, my brother, it would be different. (laughs) I mean, probably, you know, (laughs) if if that were, yeah, and you just never, you know, I always said never say never, you know, but I think it's figured (laughs) out by now. Um, Yeah, no, but, but, but my point is, and I, you know, I'm doing fine, but, but, but there are actual consequences for the kinds of support that you have emotionally, economically, in order to be in these positions that I would just say, uh, more those who are more privileged and who have those opportunities don't even have to bat an eyelash about because it's just there in ways. And I, you know, oh, well, who would have seen this coming? Like who, you know, after civil rights, it's like, you know, if you ever watch that movie, Wattstacks, it's by, um, I want to say Stephen Wolfer, who's well-known TV producer. Um, but he did a movie maybe in, se- in 1970, and it's, a, it's an amazing album. You can probably hear it on Spotify. But it had like Rufus Thomas, Isaac Hayes. Um, I think Richard Pryor shows up. It's a concert filmed in the Coliseum in Los Angeles. And it is a parade of black beauty. It is just, everybody is optimistic. People are dressed in their finest. You know, and there's no surveillance state. There's no... You know, I mean, you just get this sense of 
the power and promise of, of, of Black is beautiful at that moment. And then pff, just wiped it out. Black power, the Panthers. I mean, it just destroyed Black leaders, flooded drugs into Black neighborhoods, you know, and, and just wiped us out. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right, you're right. And I mean, I'm just thinking about, I'm just thinking about the role of the state um, and, and the ways in which it's just been an, it's just been an active participant in the perpetuation of, you know, you know, oppression and, and how it's been problematic on, on multiple levels for such a long time. Um, but like, how, how, how do you think that we as a people, um, as citizens can engage with the, 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 the state, um, our elected officials, um, elections in general to, to push forward, to, to shift things, to change things. And I mean, I, I hate to bring up, you know, Pruitt Igo again, but, you know, I just think about the ways in which the state underfunded it um, and that, like, it, it, it didn't have to fail, um, but the state continues to fail its citizens. Um, so, you know, how do you, how do you think about um, our role in, in, in interacting with uh, the government? Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good example. What the state was, I think, at the time in which it was building housing is very different than the state is now. I think at least for better or for worse, there was some kind of sense of accountability to citizens that the state had, both the federal government, the state level, uh, local level, municipal government, um, which I think um, with the rise of neoliberalism, um, weakened the state in order for capitalism to be able to move more freely. And what that brought in, that's why it killed public housing, is that now you get public-private partnerships. So development, built housing. But the problem is that the cost of the labor, the land, the construction, means that it's very difficult to build now what's called affordable housing, right? So even then, um, and so there just isn't enough housing. There's just not enough housing stock, which is Again, why black and brown people are dying from COVID-19 is because there's just, they're overcrowded again and, and it's, it's not accessible. And so I think the state has been withered away, you know, like Thatcher, um, Reagan, um, what was it, Grover Norquist said, drown, just drown government in a bathtub. So the right has really proffered this idea, you know, that all government does is it supports welfare queens, right? Because that was the right's rhetoric, rhetoric around that. And so I think that state power has really uh, diminished, but the consequences now, again, with COVID-19 is you see that there's no public infrastructure. We do not have public. In those countries like Germany that have very robust public infrastructures, where the state in Germany came into private companies and said, we're gonna pay 80% of, of the people in your firm's salary so that they're not going to be unemployed. They will keep their job, right? People here, they just throw it, you're, you're out on your own and you got to apply and maybe the government is going to give you some, but you're not going to get it right away. You've got to go through hardship. So the sense of accountability toward its citizens have been, you know, yet again diminished. And I think part of that is because white America, a good chunk of it has never felt like black and brown people deserve anything from, from, from the state. 
even though the state's the thing that organizes life as a democracy. So I don't know. I don't know at this point, given how crippled, and we can see this at the federal level, right, between the Senate doing nothing except putting loony judges in so it can, you know, basically ban abortion and put Black people back on the plantation. Um, like whether or not government can be accountable to the people. It's accountable to money. I mean, the Republicans are only doing it because it's about, these are my conspiracy theories, but, but I do think it's about money. It's about them being able to con continually make money, not have to pay taxes um, and not being accountable to the social whole because they think that whole shouldn't include people like us. So Mabel, just like a couple of other questions and then I will give you back your day. Thank you so much. Um, but I, I, I want to talk a little bit about like affordable housing. Like, is it even possible in this environment? And if it is, how does one go about, how can we go about building it um, and, and, and making it effective, um, not only for the, the developers or the people who are building, but also the people who live there? It's hard because of the ways in which land is valued and construction is financed and paid for. Um, you know, and with development, it's profit. It's about profit. It's not about housing. It's about making money out of the building. And I think that's part of why it's very difficult to do. I think there are maybe other models for financing um, the construction of housing. Um, but with the current income inequality, I, I think it's very difficult to do that. So I think there would have to be just somehow a, a, a completely different model. Other countries seem to be able to do it. Um, I mean, they call it social housing, um, but there are still monies available, um, you know, and projects that are being constructed um, and a way of supporting social housing that's that's not class, it's called social housing because it's not class-based. I mean, middle-class people live in social housing. I mean, I think part of the reason that New York's, NYCHA is a mess and I think, you know, there are billions of dollars, I mean, to, to basically renovate, it's like $22 billion to basically get, you know, NYCHA housing up to some like code or condition. But it's interesting that no New York city housing has been torn down ever. And I think part of that was because it's not as isolated, it's not as ghettoized. Um, and then a lot of times when they also built uh, low-income housing, they also built middle-class housing right across the street or nearby. You know, so you know it the, it sits within neighborhoods that um, um, that had the potential to have um, like diverse kind of economic social conditions, and and I think that's still important in Chicago. Middle-class whites didn't want it. Um, and so they were forced to actually build very dense units like the Robert Taylor homes, like Cabrini Green, um, because whites pulled not in my backyard. They got sued for it um, in, the, in the 70s. They oh, sued. Who, who got sued? Chicago Housing Authority got sued. And there was a very famous lawsuit, law case. They won. The pla plaintiffs won. Um, because the Chicago Housing Authority, the woman who ran it, wanted to spread it all out, spread housing in all these low-scale neighborhoods all over the, and, and white people, as with redlining, we don't want black people devaluing our property values. We don't want Negroes 
Um, it was so, again, distancing, proximity to black bodies was presumed to devalue your property. And that's what redlining maps basically put into place in a very systematic way. Um, and so white people fought tooth and nail to keep housing, housing units out of their neighborhood. So that's why they became very tall and very dense in Chicago. And there was a very famous law case in the 70s that sued, and that's what led to um, Title VI, I think, which was um, the um, low-scale, low-density housing all over the place. Basically, it led to um, vouchers, housing vouchers, Section 8. Do you, do you really, really believe that this American project can sustain itself, that, that it will survive? Um, you know, do you really believe that? And if so, how? And if not, why? I mean, I do feel, I feel like the aspirations of the democratic republic and an idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we could, we could do that. Um, but I think that the already existing society and those people who wrote those words and the society that followed was a complete disavowal of that belief. You know, he was a slave owner. He owned human beings. He did not believe that people were created equal and, and you know, operated within a system that sustained his and his family's life, but he owned his own relatives. He owns his, his wife's brothers and sisters. Um, and, and, and the ability to have that level of denial and believe in the mythology to the degree to which you don't see the hypocrisy in that is profound. And I don't think that we've ever addressed that fundamental um, issue of slavery and indigenous dispossession in relationship to those founding principles. And as such, those, those inequalities are still here. And I think it's produced a kind of psychotic um, patriotism that's completely warped and not really recognizing the degree to which we do not live those values. We're not exceptional. Yeah, yeah. Um, but on a more optimistic note, I mean, what do you imagine for the future? Um, you know, like, what do you envision uh, for a future that actually has, you know, empowered black people? Um, what are you fighting for? What, what, are you, what are you dreaming about? I, well, I think there are two things. Um, I, I think is to recognize the, the um, foundational inequalities that are structuring our so-called equal system and to make sure that people understand that. Um, and then to sort of imagine a world where black people really are equal. You know, which means, yeah, we get the clean water and we get the high land and, and, and we get our second home and we get, <laughs> we get the best education. Um, and, you know, 
we, we get to have family and our family survive and be healthy and be happy. Um, and, you know, and it's not just for one set of people, but for everyone, you know, and that's what I don't understand. Like we have the will, we could do this. We could be a very equitable society. There's just, the will's not there. We have the resources. So yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like it's, you know, if we're going to survive, it's worth striving for. But I don't think we're going to get there unless people really understand how profoundly it's not. I don't think it's a project of inclusion. I think we have to really radically change the system. If we have to destroy it and rebuild it, so be it. But I don't think including us in the current system just, yeah, it's, it just, it wipes us out. It doesn't, it's not sustaining for us. Well, Mabel, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for all of the like just incredible work that you do um, for the visible and invisible labor um, that you that you work through um, for your 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 fealty to black people, black histories, black futures, and just like your sheer will and drive to place yourself or to put yourself in places where you know you don't see yourself reflected and and yet you stand there and proclaim yourself um and proclaim um the people that you represent with a smile uh, and with intention and love and and i know you know we spoke earlier that you know there are nicks and scrapes that you've suffered because of that i mean there is there is a level of su- supreme sacrifice. Um, and so just, you know, thank you. And yeah, even throughout the multiple multitude of disciplines um, that you work in, um, you are always there to express and proclaim yourself. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> a great conversation. Oh, and then um, before we go, like where can people connect with you? Like where can we find your book. I'm Loki asking for myself. Um, but yeah, how can, how can people reach out to you, can connect with you? Uh, the book's coming out with University of Pittsburgh Press sometime soon. Um, and you can find me on the Columbia website, either under African-American studies or African-American and African diasporic studies or um, architecture. My Instagram is studio and a and D, um, and Twitter is Mabel O. Wilson um, at Negro Building, and my website studioand.org. Well, thank you again so much, Mabel, for spending some time with us here on the Institute of Black Imagination. Um, have have a wonderful day. Um, I'll be sure to link everything up uh, down in the show notes for everyone. All right. Thank you, Derek. Bye. Thank you all so much for tuning in today. I hope this conversation with Mabel was both informative and enlightening. Every time I speak with Mabel, I get like 17 new ideas and five new books that I need to read. And for me, she represents exactly what this podcast is about, innovation and critical thought via a black design aesthetic. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share with your friends. Shout us out over on Instagram at Black Imagination Podcast and let us know what part of the conversation you enjoyed the most. Be sure to subscribe wherever you received your podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes. 
And if you can, drop us a few coins at the link in the show notes. We have an incredible lineup ahead, and I can't wait for you guys all to hear it. I love you all so much, and I can't wait to see what magic you bring into the world. Black imagination is liberation. Stay curious and keep dreaming.